HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Yeah, I like that. Yes, it is 12 o'clock. It's Monday, and this is... What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and I am your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, And we are going to have a bang-up show today. It's called 20 Questions with Dr. Marion Nessel. But before that, there's this, and that is my weekly joys and sorrows. And I have some brilliant news for you people. The Kansas, you know how much I loved Sam Brownback, right? Or rather, how much I hate Sam Brownback. But anyway, or not even hate, I despise Sam Brownback. But anyway, so for, for months... Like over a year, probably, I have been, you know, constantly combing the news for (laughs) more news about Sam Brownback's failed experiment in economics, otherwise known as trickle down or supplied side economics, something Something which he has imposed on the people of the good people of Kansas uh, for the last uh, six years, I guess. And um, well, uh, I, I don't think I need to remind you that the state has been teetering on the edge of bankruptcy now for the last two or three years. Anyway, the brilliant news is the following, that the Kansas legislature has finally come to its senses and pushed back against Brownback, and they are on track to raise taxes in order to revive their failing state. Thanks to uh, Governor Brownback's moronic embrace of supply-side economics, a ludicrous theory in which cutting taxes on the wealthy is expected to drive economic growth, and I might add, it is a ludicrous theory that uh, Paul Ryan is trying is best to impose on the rest of us now. The state of Kansas has been sailing near the edge of bankruptcy with major disruptions in fundamental services, not the least of which has been education. In fact, they were sued by their state Supreme Court uh, because their funding had fallen below a certain threshold, which made it basically in um, you know, uh, not in compliance with, um, with the law. Anyway, in the meantime, uh, Governor Brownback uh, 
Oh, so the legislature brought, let me get to the punchline. The legislature actually brought a bill forward to increase taxes and Brownback actually had the nerve to veto this. Uh, But happily, the legislature has overridden his veto and they are about to raise taxes in a major way uh, in in Kansas and not a moment too soon. And in the meantime, uh, Governor Brownback, because of his... um, revolting toadying uh, to the Cheeto-in-Chief appears to be headed towards some sort of Trumpian award of a cushy job, uh, otherwise known as being the ambassador to the UN for food and agriculture, which uh, even in this age of ultimate irony seems like the most ironic thing I ever heard. Anyway, he's not yet confirmed, but that's only because Trump has more important things on his agenda than to make appointments, um, which, as you all know, uh, he is singularly lacking in focus to do. Um, I think there's like over 500 jobs, essential jobs of the government that have yet to be filled. But uh, I digress. Anyway, and secondly, joy indeed. It turns out that the Donald Jr. is as much of a braying blabbermouth as his daddy is. He confirmed Comey's version of the secret conversation about letting Flynn off the hook in a uh, recent newscast, I think it was yesterday, um, where he said, yes, when my dad says something, he means it. Um, and when he said, when he told <laughs> Comey to back off of Flynn, he wasn't kidding. <laughs> What a maroon! <laughs> love it. I just love that. Okay. So anyway, as I discovered while I was writing the chapter in my book, What's the Matter with Meat?, uh, on Asia, um, I, I learned that the Chinese have polluted about 60% of their soil with industrial chemicals, um, including one called cadmium, a heavy metal, which will uh, cause renal failure, among other things, um, and various cancers and so forth. Anyway, um, and they uh, they have been um, you know pumping cadmium into the water supply, I don't know, into their rice paddies, and, and, then, and from thence into their population, um, which has had quite an impact, as you might imagine. And it really made me wonder just how much we test our soils uh, for pesticide and herbicide residue and heavy metals. Um, I remember a few years ago there was like quite a panic about arsenic being in rice because uh, we were spraying uh, chicken manure over rice fields. Uh, and the chicken manure was full of um, non-organic arsenic, which is what happens to the arsenic drug that they were feeding the chickens, which has now been banned. But still, anyway, it was there and it's probably still there. But we don't talk about it anymore. Anyway, if you do have information about soil residues, I'd love to hear about it. Um, You know, how much that is being tested. I mean, given that the USDA is facing these whopping budget cuts uh, and that in general, I feel like things like that don't get tested very much anyway. um, I'd love to know from people who do know uh, what exactly is going on. So you can write on my show page. Uh, here on Heritage Radio Network, or you can write on my Facebook page for What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights, or I think it says with Katie Kiefer, actually, um, and or even better, head to my brand new website, uh, katiekiefer.com, www.katiekiefer.com. Um, and that has some information about my book and uh, links to other things that I've written and shows on this network and so forth. Um, anyway, it will further direct you on how to um, contact me. I I really don't understand what to do with my Facebook, with my website, but I I made it anyway. (laughs) Just goes to show you, like, I really still dwell in another century, I'm sorry to say. Um, And finally, and this was quite interesting, I read this in the Environmental Health News today, uh, Monsanto is finally being busted for suppressing information on uh, the cancer-causing properties of Roundup, the world's most widely used agricultural chemical. 
Uh, this was reported on by one Carrie Gillum, who writes uh, for various uh, publications, um, longtime reporter for Reuters, but uh, now um, now is involved with some other places. Anyway, she published this in Environmental Health News. It was a very interesting article. Um, apparently, Monsanto managed, <laughs> big surprise, suppress uh, some seminal studies about uh, the growing of tumors in mice that were fed Roundup, um, uh, saying that they were not, um, you know, adequately controlled or, you know, some other kind of science gobbledygook. Um, but anyway, this should be a, really quite an epic situation. I think Monsanto is being sued. So uh, that's it for Joys and Sorrows. We're going to take a quick sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Dr. Marion Nessel to play 20 questions um, on, you know, everything that she knows. <laughs> Stay tuned. Bob's Red Mill is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network and a big supporter of organic farmers. Ray and Tom Williams are two farmers who have worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray shares what their relationship with Bob's Red Mill means to them. We thought that for over the long term, we thought it would make sense, better sense for the soil. Also, we thought that... Uh, it was something that would improve the quality of the food su uh, supply. We're lucky in that we're working with Bob's Red Mill. We're part of a um, regional food network. Uh, with Bob is a fundamental uh, relationship and cornerstone to that. We also work with other best-of-class people in the Northwest, and we're thankful for the long-term relationship that's brought uh, good things to the soil and good things to our long-term farm economic plans. We appreciate his attitude toward absolutely high standards for the benefit of his customers. We take pride in meeting those standards. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. And today, we're going to play 20 questions with one of my very favorite guests, Dr. Marion Nessel. And as if she needs an introduction, well, I'll give her one anyway. Marion Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, which she chaired from 1988 to 2003. She is also the Professor of Sociology at NYU and a visiting professor of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell. Her many books include The Seminal Food Politics, What to Eat, Soda Politics, Safe Food, The Politics of Food Safety, and Why Calories Count, and many others. And she hosts the website Food Politics, where she blogs for most days. Welcome, Marian. How Hi, are you? how are you? I'm great. Thank you. So, oh my God, 10 years of blogging. I think you are to be congratulated. Oh, That's yeah, quite a something. milestone. That's a milestone. It's a milestone. I couldn't believe it. Uh, the I, know, I was looking back, and the WordPress has this terrific search engine, so you can go all the way back to the beginning and look at every post you ever wrote, should you want to do that. And I thought, holy smoke, I have an anniversary coming up. <laughs> well, I think it's really impressive, and you make it look so easy, and especially given the uh, workload that you commonly um, labor under, it's, it's really even more impressive, i got to say. So, so what are you working on right now? 
I know you have another um, book in the works. On the blog or on no, whatever? No, in your, you know, in the rest of your life. In, in oh, the rest of my life. One, one of your many, a book about another food book. industry funding of nutrition research. Oh, And excellent. that is keeping me very busy. Excellent. I don't, if people have not been keeping up with food politics, which really is shame on you if you haven't, um, you should know that Marion does a roundup on a regular basis of who is paying for what food studies. <laughs> Constantly blowing up uh, various entities in the food industry. Uh, I'm sure much to their chagrin. Um, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> really, I can't. It's the least I can do. I think so, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, so the way I formulated our show today was um, I thought of basically 20 questions for you. So, um, so I wanted to start because your one of your last posts on food politics was about the farm bill and a couple of graphics that Debbie Stabenow had put up, um, and they describe uh, some of the budget cuts to food stamps, conservation, export, et cetera. And I, I thought maybe you could go through some of those, some oh, of those well, programs. Well, you can just do it as a gen- as a generality. Just assume that there's a thirty percent, at least a thirty percent cut to anything that you care about. Jesus, um, is what is what's been proposed a thirty a 50% cut, but we have no idea how that's going to end up. Um, I mean, it really depends on what Congress does and what the lobbyists do and what happens between now and the time that they get around to dealing with this thing. So I hate to go into it in really great detail until it it begins to look as if it's something that's real. Yeah, no, I understand that. But I mean, there were some things that just blew my mind, like, for instance, um, you know, uh, the, the broadband programs. I mean, there are so many places that still need access to the Internet. And the idea that that funding, for example, could be uh, on the chopping block was really kind of shocking to me, because I think a lot of farmers really depend on that. Well, it was particularly shocking because it was the great uh, accomplishment of the Obama administration when uh, USDA Secretary Vilsack came into the administration. One of the things he promised was to revitalize rural America. And the one way in which they were able to actually contribute to rural America was by putting in broadband um, and getting broadband into those areas of the country that don't have it. And so for Trump to take it out when those are his supporters um, seems kind of amazing. It is. It to is. me, when it's so, it seems like such a simple thing to get cell phone access and internet access into places that don't have it. I go to Ithaca a lot, and there's a 30 mile stretch on the route between New York City and Ithaca that doesn't have any broadband service. Wow. You know, I mean, it's kind of amazing. It is, and, and that's New York Northern State. Northern part of Vermont, no cell phone access. Yeah. I mean, and that's New York State. I noticed that when I was up in Shelburne Farms last year, actually, the same thing. There was no, absolutely no broadband anywhere. <laughs> yeah, crazy. I mean, and for those of us who are dependent on it, it's yeah. distressing. Yes, and, you know, for people who were really dependent on it in ways that I think you and I don't really appreciate just because most of the time we do have it, um, obviously it's a much bigger deal. I mean, I'm thinking about, like, if you are you have a fire sweeping towards your uh, property and you want to alert your neighbor next door and you don't have a cell phone to do it right, exactly. out in the field, you know, like yeah. that kind of stuff, or summon the fire department, I mean, that, that, that sort of thing. You know, what's so amazing, though, Marion, is, like, it seems like Trump really has no idea who his supporters actually are because so many of the programs that are being uh, targeted for disruption are 
are basically the programs that most serve that constituency. And that's the disconnect that I just don't understand. Like, who did he think was voting for him? Well, I don't think he, th- he thought about that at all. But the assumption is that the people who voted for him will vote for him no matter what. Um, and the polls that I've seen and the interviews that I've seen, um, they think he's doing a great job. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that too. It's really distressing. Um, but I think even I mean I think even Republicans are going to shy away from a lot of. I mean I can't imagine somebody like Chuck Grassley, or you know I mean he's a farm state guy. You know like any of these guys who are in the farm states, they're not going to roll over for this particular. Well, they're being very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think they're hoping that he won't notice when they do pass something slightly less draconian, because after all, he doesn't really pay attention to anything. So uh, hard to know. It's hard to know. Now, what about something like the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which, um, you know, all of these sort of signature Obama initiatives are being uh, axed right and left. Do you think that Congress will end up up to overturning that particular act? Well, I think it, it will do what's been asked for, which is to relieve some of the nutritional restrictions and uh, that the School Nutrition Association complained about so bitterly over the last several years. I think they're going to get what they want. Um, and, uh, you know, all I can do is roll my eyes and, and agree with Michelle Obama. Doesn't everybody want kids to eat healthfully? Why would you not want your kid not to eat healthfully? I know it's it's inexplicable. And and you and wouldn't you like some help with that? I, I mean, it just makes no sense to me at all. But when it's framed as draconian uh, government nanny statism, yeah. then people really resent it. They don't want people, the government, telling them what their kids should eat, even though the government has been telling their kids what they should eat for years and years and years. Um, based on the junk food that was allowed in schools. Yeah, exactly right. Well, one of the things that Republicans love to point to is that the kids don't eat their vegetables and fruits in school, that that stuff ends up in the waste bin. Well, it depends on what school you go to. Yeah, it does. I mean, that's certainly true in some schools. I've been to schools where that is absolutely the case. I have also been to schools that have some adults in them. And if those adults happen to care about whether the kids are eating the food or not, they make the food taste good. They work with the kids around. It, the kids eat the food, and there isn't a lot of plate waste. I've been in both. Yes, exactly. And so that, well, that would su- suggest that we need a lot more in the way of uh, people in the school who help the kids understand. Because just as Michelle Obama said recently, she said, well, they don't like learning math either. You know? like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what exactly. I mean, it's kind of interesting to me because I can walk into a school and tell in seconds whether the kids are going to be eating the food or not by the behavior of the people who are running the school meal program. And these are very school-dependent. Every school is different. And so even though the rules are the same, the way those rules are implemented is very personal. And in a school where you have a principal, parents, teachers, uh, and school food service personnel who think that feeding kids healthy food is a really cool thing to do. Somehow it gets done. Right. And if you go into a school in which the culture of the school is we don't want the government interfering with what we do and we're put upon and this is horrible work and we just are, you know, making up time doing this, but it's really no fun at all. Um, the kids pick that up in a second. 
Yes, I'm sure they do. Absolutely. Well, it's it'll it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, I like you, I and, and like Michelle Obama. I mean, the idea that ch- children do not deserve the very best in nutrition in a school program. It reminds me. Did you see the Michael Moore film um, Where to Invade Next? I haven't yet. No. Well, it's not his greatest film, I have to say. But one of the things that he ta- he talks about several different things. He goes to Italy and talks about vacation. Uh, he goes to Sweden and talks about the prisons. And he goes to France, of course, and he talks about school lunch. And he shows he goes up to I think Normandy or you know not a, not a very not an especially affluent or unusual part of France and he shows what the basic meal is for the kids at lunch and it's you know it's breathtaking it's like so great you know it's 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 clean, wholesome, not very fancy, but very nice food. And, and the kids are eating. And they, of course, they eat it because they eat that at home too. I mean, it's it's really no different from you know what they eat at home. And it's, you know, there is no no issue about whether or not they're going to eat their little wedge of cheese or have their their apple or their peach or their pear. I mean, it's just what it. And 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 and, and just to further dominate this conversation for a second, I wanted to tell you that when I was in France last summer, I stopped at a rest stop, and this really blew my mind. So every rest stop in the United United States, as you know very well, is Subway, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, Auntie Jane's, or, you know, Auntie Anne's, pretzels, whatever. At the rest stop we stopped in in France, they had a sort of fast food area that had freshly made sandwiches, uh, salads, and quiche. And then they had like a cafeteria style sit down part of the of the of the rest stop where you could get things like smoked trout pate. I am not kidding you. And ratatouille. I mean, I yes, thought to myself, right. Wait, we could do this. Yeah, all you can do is laugh. Exactly. But why? I mean, here's what. Here's a question I hadn't anticipated asking you, but this is a good one for you. Why is it that, or how did it happen that uh, these fast food uh, franchises? managed to uh, invade the highway system to the extent that they did. What is the history behind that? How did that happen? Well, I don't really know the history. I can only surmise that there was lobbying and there was pressure and that they convinced um, whoever was running the transportation system in particular states that this is what people wanted and what they ate, and they might be right about that. Um, You know, I'm kind of astounded at how difficult it is to get um, something to eat at one of those places, but I'm not everybody's core customer. Well, no. I'm really not. (laughs) And the, uh, uh, you know, so, I mean, most people seem perfectly happy with it. That's what they want. It's what they're happy with. And when there's other kinds of things, I guess it doesn't sell. I don't really know. Yeah, I think so. Because I noticed, for instance, there was a cheese boy on the way. I go up and back and forth through Rhode Island all the time. And there was something called a cheese boy, which is a was a little fast food chain, I guess, that, that sold grilled cheese sandwiches, which I rejoiced in, I have to say. Because I love, oh, I, like, I love I like me a good too. grilled cheese. They're gone. They shut down. They mm-hmm. could not compete with Moe's and McDonald's and, you know, Jimmy cheese or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, but let us go on because we have many more questions. <laughs> I'm not keeping score. Okay. I don't know where we are on your list. Of okay. Well, here's, here's a real tough one. Let's talk about why America does not have a food policy and what it would mean if we did. Well, we don't have one because nobody wants one. Um, I mean, some of that is history, where uh, because of the way the agencies are set up and they're in, the um, food is governed from by the Department of Agriculture, the Health and Human Services through FDA, 
um, and the agencies are separate. They have long histories that go way back. They started out in the same agency. It all started out in USDA in 1906, but over the years, it's split. Um, and so they have different missions, different cultures, um, and different ways of approaching these problems. So it's the legislation isn't the same for the two agencies, so it's kind of hard to bring them together, even around something as straightforward as food safety. Right. Um, so the you know the original plan of the Obama administration was to um, fix the food safety regulations in FDA and then bring USDA's food safety uh, rules in line with FDA's and then put them together into a single food safety agency. But that didn't happen, and it's not going to happen. Right. So are you referring also to the Food Safety Modernization Act? Is that what that was? Yeah, that was the Food Safety Modernization Act was to fix FDA. Right. And it did that very well, except it didn't give it enough resources right. um, to really carry it out. Uh, but at least it gave uh, FDA the ability to recall products that were mm. demonstrably harmful, which it did not have before. And it also puts um, an enormous burden of responsibility on the producers of foods to produce them safely, Right. which seems like a really good idea. Well, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. It's like, <laughs> what a genius move. Incredible. Yeah. Well, I mean, sort of, sort of to build on that for a second, although I'd love to go back to the, what we would look like if we had a food policy, but I also want to, you and I have talked about GRAS, the designation that is generally regarded as safe, G-R-A-S. Generally recognized. Excuse correct me. word. Generally recognized. recognized as safe or GRAS. GRAS, right. Um, GRAS. And, and there's a, a new lawsuit that is being brought against the FDA. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and why it could conceivably be a major step forward in, you know, using unregulated additives in the food supply? Yeah, I mean, this is about food additives. So there are a lot of food additives in the food supply. And um, when this legislation started decades ago, um, it was clear that the FDA couldn't do investigations of the safety of every single one of these things because there's tens of thousands of them. And so they kind of did an estimation of which ones had been around for a long time and didn't seem to be killing anybody. <laughs> and they called those generally recognized as safe and included in that um, sugar and salt, for example, right. are both considered grass ingredients. Um, but there were food additives, the colors, flavors, uh, texturizers, other kinds of things that were not. And for those, the manufacturer would have to demonstrate safety. So the way that the manufacturers do that is that they appoint a committee to review the evidence on the safety of a particular additive, and then that committee writes a letter um, and the agency volunteer and the manufacturer voluntarily submits that letter to the FDA and somebody at the FDA takes a look at it and if it's okay then it's okay and it's grass and if it's not okay then usually what happens is the company um, takes the petition away but the FDA is really not responsible for close oversight of these kinds of things, and the lawsuit is asking the FDA to do this. 
again, something that seems so logical. Yeah. But the FDA doesn't have resources. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't. I, I mean, earlier in the show when I was doing my joys and sorrows segment before we called you, I was I was asking um, listeners to um, tell me if they knew about how much or how little testing of soil we do on a regular basis, um, because I was referring to um, the Chinese discovering that there's an enormous amount of cadmium in their um, arable land and that it has been poisoning uh, their population for quite a while. And, um, and I, you know, I, I realized I don't know how much testing we do. I, know, I remember there was a case a few years ago where they discovered arsenic in the rice um, because they had been spraying uh, chicken manure, which had been treated with arsenicals. Um, yeah, well, see, this is where the complicated regulatory system um, gets bad because the Environmental Protection Agency would ostensibly be in charge of soil quality, right. but the FDA is in charge of the safety of foods. So when whatever in soil gets into food, then it's FDA's responsibility. And if animals are involved, it's USDA's responsibility. <laughs> and you can easily think of examples where all three agencies need to be involved in a hurry, because if animals are eating plants that have a lot of cadmium in them, and we're eating those animals, that's not so great. Exactly. So that's, I mean, that's something where I don't, you know, you've just made the case. Like, uh, clearly this uh, testing and, and evaluations are not being done on a regular basis. Um, and so we don't really know what chemicals are in our soils um, in no, any, I mean, to that's any why great everybody degree. everybody says if you're going to do backyard gardening in a city, you should have your soil tested. Yes, absolutely, or do container gardening. But let's go back to the idea of, of what it would mean if we did have a food policy. For example, the issue that we just spoke about, that would come under a food policy um, umbrella, wouldn't it? I would think so, absolutely. Um, and we would have agriculture and public health linked. What yeah. a concept. Yeah. <laughs> um, because the FDA is in the Department of Health and Human Services. And, you know, there's a really weird business about that, too. Because, um, you know, I've already mentioned that FDA doesn't have enough funding or resources to do what it's supposed to do. And one of the reasons for that is that even though FDA is an agency in the public health service, which makes it a public health agency, mm-hmm. it gets its funding from agriculture, from the agriculture committees. Mm-hmm. So the agriculture committees are the ones that are distributing the funding to the FDA, which doesn't really have anything to do with agriculture, except once the foods are done, then the FDA is responsible for their safety. Mm-hmm. But this is a historical anomaly dating back to 1906. That's amazing. It would be nice to modernize this just a little bit. Just a, just a little bit. Well, I remember reading recently, I get that newsletter, um, uh, IPES, International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food. I don't know if uh, you're familiar with that publication. That um, but they were, you know, I was, I was reading through one of their back issues, this was a few months ago, and I, I, re- I noticed that there were a whole list of conferences going on literally around the world, um, you know, in Mexico, in India, in the EU, and all of those conferences were bringing together the elements that you and I are talking about right now. Agriculture, 
food, uh, you know, sort of the equivalent of the FDA and uh, farmers and, and ranchers to talk about just this. Like, how do we, for example, uh, improve the quality of our soil or diversify our crops or reduce salt, sugar, and fat from our food supply? You or know, prevent climate change. Or pre- <laughs> Yeah, that too. Um, but these were all sort of like, these were government agencies that were all coming together to talk to each other to try to harmonize, you know, how they work together. And there was not, of course, you know, not a single mention of a United States entity in any of these. We just don't do that. Well, we do on an informal basis. I was told that by people in FDA and USDA that they were talking to each other all the time during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. at least on an informal basis. And there was one interagency effort um, actually started by Congress and ended by Congress um, to try to set nutrition standards for food advertising to children. Um, and that, that there were four agencies involved in that, and the, eventually Congress just put a stop to it. Unbelievable. Um, because the industry complains so much yeah. about the idea that there would be nutrition standards for marketing to children. Marketing to children is the food industry's line in the sand. Um, they will not tolerate any incursions on that one or restrictions on that one because it will put, put them out of business. Jeez, that's a scary thought. Mm. I didn't realize that. I mean, well, they they have voluntarily yeah. said that they will not, or, or the soda companies have voluntarily said that they will not market to children under the age of 12 on television programs aimed at children under the age of 12. Right. But in two seconds, you can think of loopholes big enough to drive trucks through <laughs> in that one. Yeah. Um, you know, they advertise to children in lots and lots of other ways. Yeah, of course. I mean, um, And, you know, I've heard food industry executives say they just have to. They just have to do it. They just have to do it. Yeah. Because, Otherwise, they don't make any money. Oh, my God, Marion. Well, food companies are not public health agencies, right. and it's unreasonable to think that they are. Um, and it certainly makes no sense to think that they are. And if you look at them as public health agencies, you're not going to understand what's going on or you're going to be shocked. But they're not. They're businesses. Yes, of course. And the purpose of a business is to produce um, income. Get, uh, income for stockholders yeah. and very, very high salaries for CEOs. And yeah. high level and high level executives, and Wall Street requires food companies like any other company to grow profits, and they don't really care how. Yes, and that's the thing that always amazes me. I feel like there is some kind of fundamental disconnect between what I expect are basically pretty decent people, and yet when it comes, there is just a total blind spot about the implications of what they're doing uh, when it comes to marketing, you know, breakfast cereals, for example, which, as you've pointed out many times, are essentially, you know... (laughs) <laughs> a cookie in flake form. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I've, I've known a lot of people who work for food companies. They're very nice people. Yeah. And they, you know, I mean, their rationale is that nobody is holding a gun up to people's heads, forcing them to buy this particular product. Mm. Um, the, this is something that's completely up to individuals. It's a matter of personal responsibility. We don't have any responsibility for this. We're just putting it out there. Right. 
it's it's your fault if you're making bad choices. Um, and of course, this doesn't talk about the um, the amount of money that's spent on marketing or the extraordinary fact that I still can't get my head around that marketing expenses for food companies um, and every other company are business expenses and they're deductible from taxes. Ooh. My goodness. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that does make it very appealing to yeah, uh, spend so a lot of money on marketing then, doesn't marketing it? marketing a junk food to your child, you're paying for that. Yeah, right, exactly. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's amazing, though. It's like the the idea that you wouldn't, um, you know, with all the pushback that these companies are getting uh, in the last few years um, in terms of, you know, un- the unhealthy qualities of, you know, Kellogg's is always saying, oh, we're reducing the sugar. You know, we're doing this. We're doing that. We're tweaking our formulas um, that you, they can't really f- somehow fundamentally reverse engineer these products into something that actually would be more nutritious. Um, I don't understand why they won't go that route. Well, they can't because you're talking about um, food products, but I'm a nutritionist. I'm talking about food. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference between food and food products, what Michael Pollan charmingly referred to as food-like objects <laughs> at one point. Um, you know, the, the big problem is that when you – most of the money in the food system is in processing, yeah. It's in the labor and the and the transportation and the advertising and all of the stuff that goes into um, a potato when it is turned into a potato chip, uh-huh. which is kind of an easy example for everybody to understand. So potatoes are really cheap, yeah. and the farmer doesn't get paid very much for them. All of the money in the food system is in potato chips. And once you understand that, then everything else that happens makes sense. Yes. Um, so if you're in the food business, you want to make potato chips. You don't want to be selling potatoes. Right. Because <laughs> there's no money in them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you want to be selling not only potato chips, but you want to be selling potato chips that have, you know, that are fried in olive oil and have special rosemary flavoring. And the more you can do to jazz up the potato chip, the more money you can charge for it. Yeah. Absolutely. And the more profitable it will be because you, it starts out with very cheap ingredients, potatoes. Yeah. Yeah. And so the entire food system is set up to keep the cost of basic ingredients as low as possible, which is really bad for farmers. Yeah. Um, and all the money is in the processing. Yeah, and it, suspe- it, it sustains a, a vast cohort of, of employment. I mean, uh, it does. It, it does. does indeed. Yeah. Um, so that everybody who's involved in food processing, transportation, marketing, yeah. sales, serve food service. Um, I mean, all of those kinds of things. I mean, this brings us this incredibly varied uh, food supply that, you know, where we can get anything we want anytime we want it if we have enough money to buy it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cost of that in 
what happens to the environment and what happens to health is kind of amazing. It is kind of amazing. And then also the fact that, uh, you know, that, that the labor force is so, you know, so radically underpaid and underserved in terms of basic protections, basic labor protections is another aspect. Yeah, they were excluded from labor laws through extraordinary amounts of lobbying. Yeah. So farm workers and restaurant workers. Right. Right. You know, don't have to get paid the minimum wage. I mean, they do in some states, but not all. And, I mean, that's the basis of that. It's so unfair. That yeah. unfair system is the basis of the Fight for 15 yes. campaign, which has been very successful in a lot of places. Yes, absolutely. Well, I was um, talking about this uh, just the other night at a local library because I was promoting my book, of course. And um, and so I, I, I don't read. I just give a talk about the food system or lack thereof. And I... I managed to get myself together to look up some statistics. So it's 18 million jobs uh, are accounted for in the food sector from farm to fork. And that's, I think they said something like 10% of our total job, you know, total employment. Oh, I'm surprised it's that low. I thought it was higher. 18 million is a lot. Um, Yeah. Not as much as I thought it was. I would, I would think it would be more. Maybe I'm Um, wrong, Marion, and you're right. Everybody eats. Yeah. So, yeah. but let's go with the 18 million figure. That's yeah. a lot. But what I was saying to people who were saying, but it's so great to have cheap food. And I said, but you're not, you're, you're paying for it through, you know, other means. You're paying for it in environmental degradation. You're paying for it in, in, in SNAP benefits, food stamps and, and Medicaid, you know. <laughs> and you're paying for it in bad health. And you're paying for it in bad health. I mean, all the cost well. of those people who are sick from poor food is something that you're paying for as a tax, mm-hmm. as a taxpayer. And that, that was a connection that people don't make. And I think that's yeah, like... Yeah, and a, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, no kidding. And the fact that people can't drink the water in Toledo, Ohio. Because or in of lots the, of places. Right? Yeah. In, in fact, I was reading something in Ag Journal or Ag Farm, you know, one of the, one of the, the many <laughs> journals that you and I peruse on a regular basis. And they were talking about how many farming communities have just kind of like, they don't even complain about the fact that they can't drink the water out of their taps. They just... That's part of the cost of doing business. They just accept that all of those, you know, phosphates and nitrates and or whatever they are, nitrogen and phosphorus and, you know, all of that stuff that's in the water from fertilizer and pesticides is just a part of farming life. And the smell of pig farms. Yeah. And the smell of those chemicals in their water. Oh, my God, right. it stinks. It's horrible. Right. I mean, Des Moines, uh, you know, Des Moines, Iowa is a beautiful example of that. But I want to get to something that's become very trendy now. We're going to move on from that. We're going to talk about probiotics. No, those are trendy. Aren't they so trendy? Yeah. It's amazing. So there have been a lot of new studies, some of which you listed on your um, on your blog, Food Politics, about how probiotics affect health. Um, and I wondered if you could sort of separate a little bit of the wheat from the chaff about probiotics. Um, I was particularly interested in the, in the loss of something they call B. infantis, which is a probiotic that is passed from breast milk into babies, and the fact that women who have taken antibiotics often are deficient in that particular enzyme or whatever it is. What is it, Mary? Well, it's a bacterium. It's a bacterium. Yeah, and- I mean, probiotics are bacteria, and a much nicer term for it so that yeah. you, know, you think, <laughs> ew, I'm eating bacteria, ick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you're eating probiotics, it's the, it takes away the ick factor. Yes. And then you also have to know the term prebiotics, which is foods that the human digestive tract can't handle, but they're food for your probiotics. Oh, really? Got that? 
Yeah, I do. Okay. Cool. So what this are gets they? Gets us into the microbiome, which is you know one of the most exciting discoveries of the last ten or fifteen years, mm-hmm. um, where. DNA analysis has gotten good enough so that scientists can go in and um, look at the different kinds of species of bacteria in feces um, and do kinds of analyses. And there have been some really particularly interesting ones going on with breast with breastfeeding versus formula feeding. There are differences in the kinds of bacteria that are um, in the intestine. But you have to start with the idea, and this is uh, you know sort of icky to talk about, but you have to start with the idea that Um, what you excrete is basically bacteria and the cells of your intestinal tract. It's not what's left over from food. There's very, very little. There's very little of anything that's left over from the food we eat, maybe some fiber, but there are bacteria in the intestine who can digest that fiber, and that's why you get gas, and that's why... um, You know, you sometimes have intestinal upsets. And there are uncountable numbers of bacteria in the intestine, trillions, not billions. Um, You know, they're solid pack and they're microscopic. You can't see them Mm -hmm. individually. So it's kind of an incomprehensible system. Um, And to try to tease out, And there are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of species of bacteria. And depending on what you eat and what your genetics are and various other kinds of things, um, you're going to have, you're going to be feeding some kinds of bacteria more than others, so they will develop faster and proliferate more. Um, And for the most part, we haven't got a clue what any of it means. We don't know. We don't know enough yet. I think it's a fascinating uh, thing. But do you think they're the magic bullet that that's being suggested that it is? Well, there's in some terms magic long-term bullets. Health? I mean, for people who have um, irritable bowel disease, they've tried um, fecal transplants, yeah. and they've had miraculous effects in a few people. Um, who've been lucky enough to have those work. Um, but for the most part, we don't have any idea what's going on down there. It's really complicated, and lots of people are studying it because it's really interesting. It is really interesting. Um, I'm fascinated but, you know, by the, it. The advice is always to eat a healthy diet. That, thank you, Marion. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about was, you know how they have like a whole bunch of different types of probiotics? Okay, so what do you think are the best ones? This is a consumer-oriented question. The best for question. what? Well, I mean, is it better to eat it in food, like get your probiotics through yogurt or pickles or sauerkraut, or you know, does it, or should you be buying the fancy, expensive ones in the refrigerator section at any, Whole Foods? Any evidence that these things make people healthier, <laughs> except people who are really sick with some yes. specific problem? Right, right. You know, the the evidence on yogurt. I mean, this is, gets us right back to the beginning. The evidence on yogurt mm-hmm. is largely based on studies that were funded by the yogurt industry. Right. Um, And I remember a yogurt industry-funded study from years ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, where um, the person who did the analysis of a whole bunch of studies um, said that there really couldn't, you really couldn't tell the difference. 
um, between the results of studies using yogurt or not using yogurt. Um, but the conclusion of the study was that um, yogurt was very promising as a way to improve intestinal health. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> very promising. I mean, that's exactly what happens when you have industry-funded studies, yes. is that they're spun to favor industry, whoever the sponsor is. So that's been true. I mean, there's some studies with yogurt that show that it, if you've been taking antibiotics, that it repopulates your healthy bacteria. Yeah. Um, but I've always believed that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not seeing anything that's enormously convincing about it. There's exactly. some studies that say it works and some studies that say it doesn't. I think it's way too early. Wow, amazing. And yet this is a multi, multi, multi billion million dollar business. Oh, the probiotics, yeah. the supplements. Oh, things and the, like this. I know. And everybody's worrying about their microbiome now. I think it's really funny. Yeah, <laughs> I worry about mine all the time. You don't? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, we just have a couple minutes left, so I'm going to ask you this question um, because I w- one of the things that has been so incredibly distressing about the Trump administration, I should say, depressing and discouraging, is the fact that you I don't I, I'm sure you feel this way too, or maybe not, but I, in, in a lot of ways, I feel like all the work, all the progress that was made over the last you know eight ten years is just being basically stopped dead in its tracks. And what I wanted to ask you was, is do you think, um, you know, just as states are signing on to, to participate in the Paris Accords, climate accords, do you see a movement in state legislatures um, that would be uh, more likely to promote healthy food policies um, in the absence of any sort of federal leadership or legislation? Do you think that oh, states sure. will Just pick up Oh, sure. Just look at what's them? happening with soda taxes. Yeah. That's a great I mean, that's example. A, that's the easiest example. There yeah. are now nine cities in the United States that have soda taxes, yeah. and there are states that are considering them. I just gave a talk at a meeting in Massachusetts where Massachusetts is considering a soda tax. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these will pass. Some of these won't. Um, but there are cities that have or states that have big cities in them where people care about public health are going to pass rules and regulations that um, will maintain the standards. There are plenty of schools that say, we're going to keep feeding the kids healthy food. Right. Even though they may lose federal dollars for that. Well, they may not lose federal dollars if they work it out. I mean, if as long as they're meeting Department of Agriculture rules, there's nothing that says they can't exceed them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. There is that. Yeah, I mean, well, there's that. So yeah. I think that plenty of places will. And once again, it's going to divide the population into um, – on a class basis, there will be people who are educated and wealthier, and their kids will be fed healthier food in schools. Yeah, and people who are poor and uh, you know not politically organized um, will have their kids eating junk food. Yeah, and that's the thing that really hurts me. And that's terrible. Yeah, I mean that's really terrible. So the, yeah. the inequalities in our society will be made worse by this. Yeah. Yet another manifestation of the separation between exactly the, the wealthy and the non-wealthy. Well, Marion, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. And I, it, was, it was every bit as fun as I knew it would be. 
always nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, darling. Take care, and I hope to speak to you soon. And uh, thank you so much. Bye-bye. And thank you so much to Bob's Red Mill for sponsoring Heritage Radio Network. We love you, and we thank you, and we encourage everyone to um, purchase Bob's Red Mill products so that we can keep that whole beautiful system rolling. And um, thanks to my engineer, and we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.